Blog Talk Radio. It's time to strap our boots on. This is the perfect day to die. Wipe the blood out of our eyes. In this life, there's no surrender. And there's nothing left for us to do. Find the strength to see this through. Uh, from University of Cincinnati, 
And he also has a Twitter. You can follow him at, at Mangold underscore Lynette. Uh, we'll be talking about a recent event, uh, his uh, job there at uh, The Blaze. And also, we're also going to be talking about uh, the laptop from hell tonight. We got an audio clip uh, where Matt Getz is uh, really giving it to the assistant uh, director of uh, cyber. So we'll, we'll be hearing that. And then uh, mark your calendars for our special episode uh, that we'll be having on April 9th at 9 a.m. Eastern time. We will be streaming the first half of the conference to establish a new security and development architecture for all nations hosted by the Schiller Institute. So mark your calendars uh, for that. And of course, folks, remember, Barge Logic is the grassroots way the people show. So let's go ahead and welcome our guest uh, uh, tonight, and that is Samuel. Thank you very much, Samuel, for coming to the show. How are you tonight? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming. So we'll get, uh, you know, right to it. But first, I'd like to hear a little background uh, of yourself and how you came to write for the Blaze. Yeah, so um... – Cincinnati, Ohio native. Uh, my family's been here for you know several generations. Um, went to Sycamore High School over on the east side of Cincinnati. Uh, went to, as you said, University of Cincinnati. Um, I'm uh, like probably like a you know 15th generation UC student or alum at this point. Many of my family members wow. have gone through there. Um, and uh, so. During undergrad, um, I studied, as you said, English literature and political science, uh, and I've always been super interested in, you know, writing and journalism in general. Um, that's kind of where my strengths lie uh, and always lie during school. Never was too good at math, unfortunately. Um, but during undergrad, I got involved with an organization called the Young Americas Foundation, um, YAF, as many people know it. And uh, through YAF, I did a program called the National Journalism Center, um, and that's kind of how I got really professionally acquainted in the journalism world. Um, before then, I did some writing for UC student paper, the news record, and worked in some conservative um, journalism along with my peers. We started a little publication called Cincinnati Republic, uh, where we would just, you know, do our own op-eds, edit each other's work, and try and cover current events from, you know, just among ourselves. Um, I got connected with The Blaze through the alumni network of YAF um, and the National Journalism Center. And, yeah, just been uphill ever since. Or not uphill ever since. It's been uh, on the upswing ever since. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> An apt description there. So, yeah, so – so what, recently, I mean, at least, you know, last five years or probably has it. And, yeah, how long have you been writing for the Blaze? Uh, I started this winter. Um, I was – originally I went to law school for a little bit, realized it wasn't for me, and then, you know, uh, applied for this job when uh, one of my associates uh, let me know there was an opening there. Um, so I want to say – I forget the exact timeline. It was either – Somewhere between mid December and early January of this winter. Well, I tell you what, uh, this current regime is, is not going to give you much time to be bored. Uh, that's for certain. Yeah. I think you're going to have plenty, uh, plenty to write about uh, these next. I can't believe it's still going to be three more years. 
of having Biden occupying the White House. Uh, but, of course, there may be some light at the end of the tunnel uh, come the end of this November, but, but we'll see. Uh, now, now, at the current events, you know, I'm looking over at your, uh, you know, your spot there, on, you know, on the Blades website. You know, certainly some of these, uh, you know, caught my attention, and we'll go uh, through a few of the, you know, some of those uh, here, you know, because I want, you know, things I'd like to talk to you about. Now, of course, recently, you know, well, the most recent, this is just, you know, yesterday they're talking about it, is how Elon Musk has become the largest shareholder on Twitter uh, after purchasing about, uh, I think it was like 9.3% or 9.2% uh, stake in the company, spending about $3 billion or something of that nature. Um, so, you know, I'll pick your brain a little bit about that and, uh, what, what's your feel? What's your take on why you think, you know, Elon Musk? Which, frankly, at this point, you know, I mean, I, I've been a pretty big fan, a big fan, you know, pretty big fan of, uh, of SpaceX. You know, I, I don't really care much about Tesla, to be honest with you. Um, of course, I think that's the kind of battery that NASA uses, or or something of that nature, or uh, some other electronics he was using from that to, because he's off the grid, through my understanding, Congress of NASA there in Kentucky. Uh, these Tesla batteries of that nature, but I was never a real big fan of Tesla, but I'm certainly a big fan of SpaceX, and I think they might uh, be an integral part in other, something else I want to talk about, and you wrote an article uh, about with, when it comes to the International Space Station, but we'll get that in a little bit. Uh, so what's, what's your take on, on Elon Musk, uh, you know, purchasing, you know, I, guess, I don't want to call it controlling yet because he's supposed to be, you know, behind the scenes at this point. Uh, but the largest stake of Twitter stock, which, again, is – I find it not only ironic but funny, but <laughs> go ahead, Samuel. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, I, I I don't really care a whole lot for uh, Tesla. Um, you know, I think electric vehicles are – you know, they're fine. They're whatever. I don't really have much of an opinion about them. Um, but I'm, you know, far more interested in SpaceX. Um, I just think it's a much more – you know, not that electric vehicles aren't a worthwhile endeavor, um, but I think, you know, space is something that we need to be spending a lot more of our resources in as a, uh, as a civilization. Uh, and SpaceX is one of the most effective ways for us to do that. Um, I'm actually pretty weary of Elon Musk. Um, so I personally, I, I think he's very entertaining. Uh, I think as far as, you know, 21st century American oligarchs go. I think he's pretty, uh, pretty, you know, one of the least uh, bad ones, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, but I, I don't feel comfortable saying I necessarily trust him. I don't think he's. On, I don't think he's a conservative. I don't think he's um, necessarily on our side, so to speak. Um, I think he. Well, he no, I think he likes. I mean, he has been doing, a, you know, a lot of uh, business with China lately. I have noticed that. Right, exactly, and that—that's kind of where—that's kind of where I was going with that. Is I, he is opening a, um, you know, a, a giant um, Tesla outlet in the Zhangjiang province. I don't think I pronounced that correctly, but in the province of China, where they're uh, running a genocide against the Uyghur Muslims. Um, so. Uh, it makes me kind of question, you know, what is his end game? You know, what, where are his loyalties truly set? Is 
the world just one giant sandbox for him to play in, or does he truly have some sense of, you know, civic patriotic duty to the United States? And is like, what, what, what is he, what is his end goal is kind of what I'm curious about. Um, in regards to Twitter, you know, more power to him. Um, I'm glad that, uh, that these tech CEOs are afraid of him, frankly, um, because he, he's a wild card. No one really knows what to expect from Elon Musk. And, you know, that's both his greatest strength in many ways and kind of one of his greatest weaknesses at the same time. Um, so, you know, with the future of – so he a while ago, uh, before he – like just a few days before he made his purchase of Tesla, of um, Twitter, uh, Twitter stock, that is, he put out a poll on Twitter and was like, do you think Twitter truly cares about free speech, et cetera, et cetera? And, of course, people were like, no, of course Twitter doesn't care about free speech at all. Um, so I'm curious to see what he will do in regards to – changing the shape of the company. Uh, he was recently added to their board of directors. Um, that was just announced, I think, today by their CEO. Um, so I, I think he originally, when he made his uh, stock purchase, it was so he would have a passive uh, role in the company. So he, at the time, he couldn't make active decisions about the trajectory of the company or any major decisions affecting company policy. Um, that's definitely probably going to change. Um, I don't see... Elon Musk isn't the kind of guy who would just buy, you know, 10% of the, one of the world's biggest companies solely to see what happens. He's, he wants to do something with it. Um, so I'm very curious to see where it goes. How about you? What, what is your opinion on it? Well, a couple of things that you mentioned, and I, I find myself uh, in, in some sadly agreeing, and, and let me, you know, clarify that is, yeah, I mean, and, you know, especially because of SpaceX, you know, I'd really like to be able to trust the guy and, and hope that he does, you know, have, you know, our, you know, when I mean our, I mean the United States' uh, best interests right. in mind. Uh, I'm, I'm not too sure about that yet, especially when you hear about, what he, you know, what he's doing over in China. It kind of reminds me, not that this is really much of a comparison, but it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, the NBA, really, <laughs> you know. They're, follow, follow, yeah, they're yeah. following the money. They're following the population. I mean, I, I mean that's why. I mean, I, that's why everyone's, I think, flocking to China. I mean, you got a billion, you got a billion customers there. Uh, you got a billion, you know, a billion viewers. You know, I, I, I was kind of putting some hopes. I know I'm kind of getting out in the weeds a little bit, but I was kind of putting our hopes uh, with a strong alliance uh, with with India because I mean they've got about a, you know, a billion people as well. But, you know, one thing I think that the – again, I'm, I'm getting a little off topic, but uh, but I think it all ties together. I mean, because you see how India is, you know, really getting in behind Russia and this, you know, this Ukraine uh, affair, I guess you could say, uh, that, you know, I'm really I'm – really, it's really concerning on on India's stance, and that's something we'll, we'll talk about, and maybe we'll hear more about you know, about things this coming Saturday. I'm, I'm not going to be doing much commentary. But anyway, I'm, see, I'm getting off to the weeds uh, there. But anyway, back to Elon Musk. Um, you know, what he wants to do with Twitter is, oh, yeah, I mean, no one's going to no spend that much money. At least I wouldn't think so. Spend that much money and not have some type of influence you know, over that. I mean, for me, that just doesn't make sense. So I think he's going to. Now, I know he's previously was talking about starting his own platform. Uh, but I guess, you know, why, 
you know, why make something new if you could just buy, you know, what's already existing and go through, and go through the headache to try to build something brand new and get, and get into, you know, more. I mean, look what Trump tried to do with, with his own social platform, and I don't, I don't know how far that's getting. So maybe decided, well, you know, might as well just, you know, buy up uh, uh, as you can and part of Twitter and then. But, yeah, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll see where it goes. And I, I wish I can, you know, trust them fully, but, yeah, I just. Uh, I'm not sure. My my jury, so to speak, is still out on that. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. Is um, and related to um, you know Trump's uh, truth social. Um, you know, there's a lot of problems with launching your own independent social media network. Uh, we saw it with Parler uh, when that originally right. uh, got off the ground and then was you know nuked by the tech overlords. But um, specifically in this instance with uh, Truth Social, you know, it's when it was launched, it was a, had a huge problem getting off the ground because so many people wanted to join it. It got flooded, um, and the, there's issues with staffing. Some of its uh, tech directors just left because they were frustrated with it. Whenever right. you know, there's this there's, there's this this um, perpetual notion of just go build your own X Y Z. And, you know, that's really hard to do. Um, and by all means, you know, we should construct our own parallel economy where we aren't reliant upon institutions that hate us um, because chances are they're not going to change their ways. But it's much more effective, at least from my perspective, for us to kind of take over the institutions that are currently in control and bend them to our will, kind of what Elon wants to do with Tesla – or not Tesla, Twitter – so instead of building his own uh, you know, social media platform like Gab or Getter or Parler or however many iterations there are these days, he one of the most popular ones with the intention of making his will come to the forefront of its governance. And I think that's kind of how we ought to proceed moving forward. You know, granted, you know, what are you and I going to do about that? We don't have, you know, billions of dollars to go buy a seat on I don't know Disney, but <laughs> right. that's that's sort of how I sort. I, I think it's a much more effective strategy, at least theoretically, than just building everything from scratch for ourselves. Is we have to kind of play with the cards we're dealt, and in some instances, flip the table and stack the deck in our favor. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, and I think you know, it makes me wonder if he's going to maybe turn around and then buy up some. Some stocks, of, you know, or buy up some of Facebook. <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe I mean, Facebook is – Facebook, uh, Facebook dwarfs Twitter in size. Like, uh, we, we hear so much about Twitter because, you know, journalists and politicians all use Twitter right. uh, as, like, their own independent, like, platform to speak on. But Facebook is so much more – has so much more of the market share. You know, they have Instagram, which a bunch of Gen Z uses. They have Facebook. They have WhatsApp, which is huge internationally. And they're tracking you everywhere, everywhere you go with yeah. a computer or just any kind of technology. Yeah, that's why, that's why I don't do Facebook very much. <laughs> One of the reasons. Right, yeah. Well, same way, yeah, same reason I don't do much Google. I mean, I had Gmail, but I was uh, weaning myself off anything Google. Um, so I don't even use right. Gmail for, uh, for email anymore. Yeah, I still use it for um, I still use it for my email, but you know, there's there's alternatives. There's there's like Proton, there's there's DuckDuckGo for your search engines, right? 
and I think I think more and more people are going to start. Uh, they're, they're already still pretty big platforms, but I think more and more people, as they become increasingly aware of you know <laughs> these companies kind of sort of stealing your identity with their data and making money off of it, there I think more and more people are going to wake up to that and just look for alternatives that they can trust a little more. Well, yeah, I mean, I use ProtonMail, I use DuckDuckGo, I don't even, you know, use Google for any type of searches anymore. Right, and, so you know, Google thing, also suppresses so much information, so. Sorry to oh, my gosh, that. yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly does. I mean, trying to find anything, you know, trying to find anything conservative on uh, on Google, one, you got to be, you know, really specific, like, article on topic, you know, with OAN or, or, you know, One American News or something of that nature or uh, Newsmax where, um, you know, you have to be real specific to even try to find, you know, find something with a conservative uh, perspective on it. Right. So one of the things we uh, like to segue into, we uh, mentioned it briefly, another thing you wrote about, uh, was how, you know, of course, you know, the, the war in Russia, you know, in Ukraine is still going on, uh, you know, and I know some are saying that, you know, Ukraine, Ukraine didn't necessarily provoke it, but they're talking about how, you know, there, there was talk about them going into, you know, the NATO and things of that nature. And so, you know, this is like a, you know, I guess actually defensive move for, for Russia, but I just grab it anyway. I'm getting, you know, what I want to get into is how, you know, with all the sanctions and everything, and everything else, is how you wrote about Russia's, you know, stop collaborating with the International Space Station and bringing back Elon Musk and SpaceX. I mean, we may not need Russia uh, for the International Space Station. And, and one person I'd like to pick their brain uh, about as a Democrat, but I mean, he spent a year on the International Space Station, and uh, that's Mark Kelly from Arizona. I wouldn't mind picking his brain and see what his thoughts about Russia are. If he spent, you know, so much time, you know, with Russians, you know, on the International Space Station, and he stayed there a year. Uh, but you know, again, I mean, it really—I mean, this this war in Russia, I think it's going to—I mean, Ukraine uh, with Russia, I think it's definitely going to be reverberating uh, in ways that we don't really, you know, think about. It. Unfortunately, I think it's going to really affect the space program at least in the short term, um, you know, and, and I guess, you know, what I'm talking about here with the International Space Station, uh, you know, because of the, the sanctions. Right. Yeah, I'd like to you know, talk more on that. Go ahead. Uh, it's, what, what's always really been upsetting to me is, you know, with space progress, it's always one step forward and a thousand steps back. You know, once we <laughs> yeah. finally got into – like commercialized, not commercialized, but the private sector having commercial airline or air, commercial space flights. And that's a monumentous step forward. But without, you know, international cooperation, at least up to this point, it's been kind of impossible for humanity to really have a permanent presence in space aside from just corporate and governmental satellites. So, I, I, I don't know. It, it's real. It's really bothersome to me that, you know, I agree. I, I'm kind of worried about the future of the uh, ISS, but at the same time, like, do we need them necessarily to keep it in space? How do we 
go about doing so independently. I, I feel as though it's such a massive um, undertaking that it'd be pretty difficult to get the federal government to spend money on space, um, unfortunately. Whereas, you know, I'm sure they'll spend billions of dollars on the most frivolous nonsense. But when it comes to funding the space station and, you know, the scientific research in that regard, um, I'm sure they'll be very uh, slow to, you know, turn out their pockets. Um, but with Elon Musk and SpaceX uh, stepping up and saying, you know, we'll help keep this from crashing into the Earth, it is um, – there is reason to be optimistic, I think. You know, there, we aren't solely reliant upon – you know, bureaucracies to keep us exploring space anymore. You know, obviously we need to rubber stamp permits and whatnot to make sure that these companies can go up there or are authorized to go up there. But we have the technology, we at least have some of the technology to do it independently and not at the behest of people who just want to push papers and make things take forever because they have, they have profit incentives making things take forever. Well, and also, uh, you know, not just, I mean, yeah, we can keep the, you know, International Space Station uh, going. And, I mean, and we did, you know, for people, I mean, I, I don't know about, you know, getting to the moon. I mean, sometimes I wonder, I'll be honest with you, if we actually did get there. Uh, you know, I've got a couple people, actually one of our, our panelists, uh, Kelly, who, who's on, just to, uh, Kelly just pushed the one on your number dial when you're ready to get in, but, uh, so sometimes I wonder, it's like, why is it so hard? Why is it taking us so long to get back to the moon? I mean, we've already been there once. So what's taking, uh, you know, what's taking so long? And two is we, we better do something because, I mean, China, you know, our adversary, I'm, I'm not going as far as say enemies at this point, but, you know, our, our adversary certainly, you know, they're working on getting over, uh, you know, getting up to the moon. And, of course, that's, you know, there's helium three up there, and that's for nuclear fusion, which I right. think is going to be the the future of of energy here. And you know, I said this many times in the show. You know, if you look at history, you know, space really is the final frontier. Yeah, I'm a big Star Trek fan, but uh, anyway, <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, if you look historically, I mean, when you see the vast armies of Alexander the Great and th those who were able to control the land, whether militarily or through trade. You know, those were the people who pretty much, you know, said what goes on the planet, right? You know, there were the the, right. were the powers of the planet, the hegemon, if you will. Uh, and then once you had, you know, people were able to control the seas, England, you know, I mean, look look how they were able to spread their influence and control uh, over the globe. And then once uh, the United States took over the air, well, now, you know, with our, the air superiority we, we have, or, you know, which is waning, uh, the next thing space. And right now, China and even Russia look at their um, their hypersonic uh, nuclear missiles, uh, and then what? And right. then there's the yeah. militarization of space from the, from China. I mean, if we don't get our act together, getting to the moon, and I mean, really taking you know, the space force seriously, I, I think it's going to be to be to our own detriment. No, I I 100% agree with that. Um... You know, I, I, I will go as far to say that China is our enemy right now. Um, I, I think they passed the state of adversary long, long ago. You know, they explicitly state their intention is to usurp us on the world stage and establish a new global pecking order. Um, and like you said, if you, whoever has the, the, the lasting presence in 
any terrain controls it. And we kind of gave up our claim as a nation to space a while ago. Like there, there's no reason why we should have stopped funding the space program back in the 20th century. That was, we knew back then that was where the future was. And we just kind of, well, it was Democrats in Congress who just kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, we don't want to pay, spend money on it. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's paramount that we get back up there and make our presence permanent. You know, President Trump did a great thing with introducing Space Force because he had the, well, personally, I don't think this was too much foresight. I think it was, frankly, common common sense to anyone who was humble enough to acknowledge it, um, that space was critical for national security. Um, You know, like you said, China and Russia have these hypersonic missiles. They can get past all of our missile security and our low-orbit missiles. If we don't have a presence in space, if we don't have a defense presence in space on top of that, we're just kind of opening ourselves up to be obliterated. And, you know, furthermore, this is a bit more of a luxury, I suppose, but there's trillions of dollars that can be mined from the asteroid belt. That, granted, that's probably not going to be feasible in the lifetime of anybody listening to this podcast, but there is so much untapped potential in space that we have every incentive to strive to strive to attain. And then, uh, yeah, so one of the things we're going to, I mean, this is totally uh, switching gears here, except uh, we're already at the bottom of the hour. Uh, you know, that's one thing I should have warned you about here on the show. Time certainly does fly. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, one thing um, I, want to, I want to get to is, and I mentioned this earlier, uh, earlier on is, you know, you know, Trump did reach out, you know, towards the end of his uh, his tenure, and this was before COVID, to India, you know, to try to strengthen our ties with India. But unfortunately, you know, with this, you know, this ongoing uh, situation over in Ukraine with Russia, you know, India, which, which, which I don't understand is, is, to my understanding is, you know, they do a lot, we do a lot more trade with, with India than Russia does. But yet they're, they're siding, you know, India's siding with Russia when it comes to what's going on over in Ukraine. Now, I know Russia supplies them with, you know, you know, you know fuel and, and also weaponry, frankly. Um, but, I mean, I think I read something somewhere maybe you could, you know, uh, cooperate this. Is, and we do like $71 billion worth of trade annually with India and and Russia does like three billion a year, or something like that. So I don't understand. And you wrote that article that says India Russia working to launch a, a rupee ruble trade agreement. Uh, that's and, and who knows, maybe that was maybe that was your article where I read that about the the, the seventy one uh, uh, yeah the seventy one billions worth of goods and Russia, yeah I did I got that from your article. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, thanks for reading. I appreciate it. Um, well, yeah, no, uh, personally, I I think. I think India is, you know, when after after Russia invaded the Ukraine, it was pretty. The Western response to it was pretty swift. Pretty within the you know almost immediate aftermath, the Western world sanctioned the living crap out of the Russian economy and the Russian oligarchs. Um, and you know, countries that were still friendly to Russia or wouldn't condemn Russia's uh, invasion, they were put on notice. They were told that, or they weren't. Well, they were in some cases, but they, they were given the, the gesture that 
if you continue to be friendly to Russia in the, in the midst of this attack, we are going to be hostile to you. And there was a period where the United States and the UN considered sanctioning uh, India in addition uh, to kind of like slap them on the wrist for their friendliness to Russia. And personally, I think that's where this sort of has some of its roots is they feel slighted by the United States and the West. Um, they feel insulted for, uh, I mean, which is, I mean, it's logical. They, they feel insulted that we would, you know, threaten to sanction them or hurt their economy in any particular way. Um, but it's, it's absolutely ridiculous that, you know, we're in a position where the U.S. dollar could be cut out as the, the global reserve currency um, because of these more independent trade agreements. You know, you know there, there, there's absolutely no reason why we are allowing – I mean, I guess at the end of the day, we can't really say and dictate the, the trade policy of a sovereign nation. But, you know, like you said, we have nearly $75 billion in trade with India every year versus Russia's three. It's, it's, it's ridiculous that we have to constantly wring our hands and try and make amends when we should be o always negotiating from a place of strength. Russia, Russia's economy does not pose a threat to us on a global stage, but in regards to like numeric strength and you know, what it can truly do in regards of its might, but if we continue to allow these trade agreements to undercut the st status of the U.S. dollar as a global reserve currency, we're going to find ourselves in a really dangerous position. But yeah, actually, on the um, they're going to be talking a little bit about this. Uh, I was going to talk about this later, uh, but there is uh, this weekend, and, and actually, I'm going to I'm going to send you a link of uh, the podcast after it's, re it's recorded. Um, you know, to the the conference I was, I was talking about earlier that I'm going to be streaming in. Uh, it's by the Schiller Institute, the International Schiller uh, Institute for the for a conference to establish a new security and development for all nations, uh, one of the things they're actually going to be talking about, um, you know, is, is, you know, things of that nature. And one of the speakers uh, who talking about how the sanctions actually, uh, one of the speakers that says that the retired business uh, consultant and chairman of Burlingame Foundation um, it's going to be talking about now. I don't know if that's going to be in the sec that's going to be in the third section. So I'm, I'm unfortunately won't be streaming that. But it's going to talk about how the sanctions are actually going to be bad. Uh, the sanctions against Russia and China are going to be bad for the U.S. dollar. And I think that's what you're alluding to. Uh, you know what can happen with these other currencies. But I was speaking with uh, someone from the Rush organization, and he was stating that you know one of the problems is is that you know our 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 financial system is based off of, you know, speculation, whereas, you know, Eastern like Russia, China, and India, you know, they're trying to base their, um, their economies on actual, you know, physical uh, products instead of speculation. And then that, that could cause some, some troubles as well. And that's actually going to be part of the conversation. Uh, as I said, I'll send you the, uh, a link to the podcast. You can listen to that. Maybe, you, you know, you'd find some, interesting information for, you know, some articles for that. But, uh, I mean, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, it definitely sounds, I mean, it sounds fascinating and frankly alarming. I mean, 
It is. It's. It's very moving. This is just kind of my, my personal opinion on this, but moving off of the gold standard, I think, was one of the dumbest things that has ever happened in this country. Uh, once we went from a economy that was backed by you know physical assets to a economy based on debt and speculation, inflation skyrocketed, and everything just became incredibly abstract for the sake of abstraction. Like you said, India, Russia, uh, China, are all their economies are all based in you know physical assets and goods. What's ironic is all those goods are goods that used to be manufactured in the United States. Um, so it's really disheartening to me that you know all these free trade agreements from the you know the 20th century that were said to increase our GDP and you know give us cheaper goods really just kind of gutted our economy and our manufacturing sector and our blue-collar middle class and boosted up our global adversaries. Um, you know, I don't – I have no idea how we reverse that short of just reshoring all of our manufacturing or at least a, a hefty sum of it. Um, but we need a, a, a reverse in course very, very quickly or there's going to be a lot of trouble down the road. Mm-hmm. Well, and that and that's actually what this conference uh, is supposed to talk about. Um, you know, is you know basically what the fight is. What you know, again? I'm, I'm not going to speak for you know for, for the people from the Larusa organization. Uh, is that you know what they're what they're stating is that you know it's it's really becoming one of the problems between the East and the West is that you know they want to increase their you know the production. But here at the West, they're so concerned with their Green New Deals and, and cutting production that, you know, what we're trying to do is stop, you know, the, the other nations, second world nations, if you were, third world, uh, like like uh, like Africa, uh, what China's, you know, doing over in Africa with the, the Belt and Road that they've got going on uh, is that, you know, we're trying to, you know, the, the West is actually trying to decrease, you know, decrease production you know, to, to save the planet from climate change. And places like, you know, China and Russia and India are like, oh, wait a minute. No, we, we don't want to be a part of this. Uh, I mean, right. So, I mean, that's certainly, a, you know, and that's, and, and, but how can we stop, you know, you know, the, you know, from the, the wars going on and then keep, uh, you keep us from sinking into a, a world depression. And I'm, well, I'm not, I might be going too far as to say it that way, but that's some of the things at the, the conference this weekend. Uh, is supposed to, you know, address. I mean, it's, you know, you mentioned um, whoever controls the terrain controls, you know, the the outcome. China controls a disturbing amount of the uh, terrain in regards to uh, of the terrain in regards to um, the international com- infrastructure for commerce. Be- Belt and Road is probably one of the greatest security threats facing the United States, but, you know, we don't concern ourselves with it as much because it's trade. It's not, we we think of trade as enriching. We don't think of trade as a threat to our sovereignty, but it very much is. Um, And like you said, with the Green New Deal and us just not wanting to produce, there's this deeply internalized self-loathing in Western civilization or Western countries. Um, you know, you see it in England, um, but it's really, really more prevalent here. 
people just don't have the will to exist as a civilization anymore. And it's really disheartening for younger generations because, you know, what is the point then? What is your ultimate goal if you don't want to build? If all you want to do is tear things down for the sake of environmentalism, what are you going to, what is there going to be besides, you know, this lofty abstract goal? It's very, it's very nihilistic. It's, it's quite dark and disturbing. Yeah, it certainly is. And I really don't know what their end game is. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, Kelly like to, to chime in and we're going to have some more, you know, before you, before you go some more, I'm saying it's more lighthearted. And the reason I'm saying that, and, uh, and I'm talking about the, the saga of the uh, Hunter Biden, I mean, you know, the Hunter Biden uh, laptop. Uh, and the reason why I say it's more light is because, I mean, th- these are these economic discussions are certainly serious, you know, serious discussions. Now, I mean, there can be some serious implications, you know, with the Hunter Biden laptop. But I mean, we're, we're I mean, here we're talking about, you know, the corruption of a president, which, gee, does that, does that you know, in the government, I mean, does that surprise anybody? I mean, that's not something I think that's world-shaking, but, I mean, the way uh, a shifting economics, and if it doesn't shift in the right direction, uh, then, either, I mean, that, that could just spell disaster for, for all. But let's go ahead and uh, bring in Kelly. Uh, Kelly, thank you very much for coming to the show. How are you tonight? Hey, I'm doing well. Uh, Samuel, um, thanks for joining us. I looked at your uh, articles on the blaze, just kind of a cross-section. It looks like you're uh, really well-informed and are just uh, have a lot of a wealth of knowledge, if you will, on many topics. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, and uh, yeah, the blaze, I, I'm going to guess the viewership is growing and growing over the last many years. Um I'm just guessing, but anyway, yeah. So, uh, what do you what do you think about the Hunter Biden laptop? And uh, you know, what what is the Blaze putting out regarding that? Um, so I don't really know exactly what all is in the works or what people other than myself are really working on regarding it. Um, my personal opinion is, I think it's one of the so, so uh, when, when Donald Trump was president, every single thing he did, people would say, oh, my God, this is bigger than Watergate. This is the next Watergate. This is the biggest scandal in presidential history. The laptop is quite literally several dozen magnitudes or magnitudes of order larger than Watergate. Like, uh, this is, you know, more and more and more we're seeing that it is being proven true and if and when they can ever connect the um, quote unquote the big guy, uh, if they can ever prove that is Joe Biden, you know this will be one of the most. I mean, one, it's a horrifying case of media malfeasance and you know media corruption in regards to the media just sat nuking the story when the New York Post broke it and keeping it from being circulated before the 2020 election, but it'll indicate that implicate Joe Biden in one of the biggest corruption scandals in American history. Oh, I totally agree. Uh, way bigger than Watergate if it's connected well and proven well. Um, yeah, so um, Mark Levin was uh, – he yesterday he did a piece um, discussing how the media is covering it up 
and other indications, a, a poll that one out of five Democrats would have never voted for Biden had they known this, um, which means obviously he wouldn't be president. Uh, but also Mark Levin was talking about independent prosecution. Why are they not looking into this? Why is the Justice Department – did you see the Matt Gitz, um discussion in the House Judiciary Committee where Matt Getz was um, blasting the cybersecurity the top guy? It's a division of the FBI, cybersecurity. And Matt Getz, the congressman, was just was hounding him with questions. Why why don't you have this – why are you looking into it? And the answers were, well, it's not our peer review. It's not our job. It's not uh, – uh, we don't have the laptop, blah, 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 blah. In other words, they don't want to look at it. Uh, did you happen to see that uh, clip? Yeah, I saw a bit of the um, committee hearing, and, you know, I, I agree. I, I, it's very much – you know, the swamp protects its own, and – Joe Biden has been in D.C. for, you know, more or less his entire adult life. He's been a U.S. – he was – you know, got elected to the United States Senate when he was 30 years old. He's been in D.C. ever since. The, the way that city works Boy. is it, it it protects everyone in the inner circle, no matter what. It protected the Clintons. It protected the Kennedys. And it's protecting the Bidens. It's – I mean, I, I think it's going to take a lot of muscle and a lot of willpower – to really bring them to justice. I mean, you know, the next Republican administration, and of course, knock on wood, um, I think the next Republican administration will be in uh, 2024. And looking at the current polling, it look, again, knock on wood, it looks like 2022 after the midterms, the GOP is in a good position to retake both chambers of Congress. There needs to be, and, and Congressman Jim Jordan said he would investigate this um, on the House Judiciary Committee, we need to really put the screws to these people and get to the bottom of this because it is, it is grotesque. It is evil and it is horrifyingly corrupt. Oh, I, I totally agree. Um, yeah. So um, I wanted to possibly work with you off air and give you some things you can write in an article. It has to do with the, Justice Department and how they selectively prosecute or don't prosecute. When Eric Holder resigned, there was a congressman from Texas who said um, all Eric Holder did as attorney general was cover up for Obama's corruption. And there was another congressman that said something similar. And so I wanted to um, – I'm a published author actually and I've been a guest panelist for, I don't know, what, I don't know over 10 years now I think, Robert? Eight years, nine years, yeah, nine years. Ten years. Anyway. Yeah, this June will be uh, the show's been up for ten years. Uh, this uh, November, not November. That's my my work. Uh, <laughs> this uh, uh, this yeah. June. So, here's a summary statement I've come up with with some research about the Justice Department. Now, the Justice Department is a Johnny Come Lately in American history. It was formed in 1870. In about 1905, they came the Bureau of Investigation, which was started by uh, an attorney general at the time. Now, the attorney general, that word is in the Constitution, Justice Department, 1870, the Bureau of Investigation in uh, about 1905, and then formally in 1935, there was some type of congressional approval for the FBI, and it was the Bureau of Investigation became the FBI. Okay, it's all under the Justice Department. Okay, but here's a summary statement that I've come up with in my research, and this is preliminary stuff, but it's still 
it's right on point. Um, but we'll go back to 1972. There was a United States senator who proposed that uh, a law that people could petition directly to the grand jury. See, I write a petition, First Amendment. Isn't that interesting? And the attorneys got a hold of this, and they said, no, 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 we're, we're going to put it in the hands of the Justice Department. It's 18 U.S.C. 3332B, where once a petition to a grand jury is received, the prosecutor is required to inform the grand jury and give his opinion. It doesn't say within 30 days. It doesn't say within three years. There's no time limit. But they took a good bill from a senator, and then they perverted it so the Justice Department would have control over what did or didn't get into the grand jury. That's 3332B, and that was in 1972. Okay, so here's a summary statement about the Justice Department. Since the passing of 18 U.S.C. 3332B in 1972, the U.S. Department of Justice has been given 50 years to prove itself as just, prosecuting before the grand jury blind to party lines. In these 50 years, the Justice Department has proven itself to prosecute political opponents while refusing to prosecute political allies. Prosecutors can justify this behavior claiming prosecutorial discretion. Justice Department prosecutors know they are protected by prosecutorial discretion. Prosecutors also know they are not required to provide to a grand jury exculpatory evidence when going after a political, political enemy. This trend to prosecute political enemies while ignoring crimes of political allies will continue unless there is a change. Congress needs to pass a law to take prosecutorial discretion out of the hand of the Justice Department. This by empowering the grand jury and affirming citizens' right to petition a grand jury directly. In addition, the grand jury itself should be allowed to select their own prosecution. Many states have in their statutes the ability of a grand jury to request of a judge independent prosecution or special counsel. So what's going on here, present statutes, the attorney general can appoint a special prosecutor, or Congress can appoint a special prosecutor. But other than that, forget it. Um, and so what happens here, you have the Justice Department, who's run by the attorney general, who, Merrick Garland, presently, who appoints the uh, attorney general. That would be, oh, the president of the United States. So you can have a fox that guards the hen house. He can appoint – you have a fox that guards the hen house situation appointed by the president. And so you have all this rampant corruption, and we're wondering why is Hillary not being investigated? Why is it that um, Hunter's laptop is not investigated? What, what, what is going on here? This is just – this is a mess. And so I want to read to you also some things about the Fifth Amendment, and I hope I can attract your attention to off-air. We can work – I can get you some information so you can write an article about this. But on the federal level, for the Fifth Amendment, for a federal felony, if there is no indictment nor a presentment, then there is no accountability. This means that absent an indictment or a presentment, federal government – Officials and employees can get away with breaking the law. This is best explained by the United States Supreme Court ruling of 1887, which states, quote, The declaration of Article 5 of the amendment to the Constitution that no person shall be held to answer for a capital or those infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury 
is jurisdictional, and no court of the United States has authority to try a prisoner without indictment or presentment in such cases. That's Ex parte Bain in 1887. Another court case. In 1973, SCOTUS Justice William Douglas wrote the same. For no matter how obnoxious a person may be, the United States cannot prosecute for a felony without a grand jury indictment. The grand jury is the only accusatory body of the federal government recognized by the Constitution. So are, are you, uh, Samuel, are you beginning to understand why some of these high-level crimes go unprosecuted? Oh, for sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's I mean, it's, I don't want to keep using the word corruption, but it's, it's corruption. It's, it's people want to protect their friends and their allies so they can perpetuate their hold on power. Yeah. Would you like to see, um, knock on wood again, the Republicans taking the House and the Senate, would you like to see it if they could actually pass a law where a grand jury can pick its own prosecution? Um, I mean, I'm certainly interested in the concept of it. Um, my, my, my concern with – so I would never underestimate the GOP's ability to screw something up. Um, and you know, we we see time and time again Republicans will get power, refuse to use it, and then lose it. So like in and after Trump got elected in 2016, you know we had the House, we had the Senate, we had the presidency, and we had a conservative majority on the Supreme Court. And you know nothing got nothing effective got done about Obamacare. I, I I'm pretty I'm. You know, granted, you know, the, there's, you know, fresh, there's fresh blood in the water motivating Republicans nowadays, but I'm very skeptical of the National Republican Party's ability to execute on any legislation of considerable scale. Um, you have a good point there, because I've noticed that too. I'm like, guys, you should have done this and this and this, and, and you what? Now you're not having the power again. What? Yeah, it's very right. frustrating. Um, they're, they're very good at being in the minority party without power, where, where they can just fundraise and you know saber rattle. But when it comes to actually governing, the GOP isn't the most effective. Wow, wow! I want to read to you a quote of how our country was founded. Um, I, by the way, I published a book about a grand jury back in 2011. I've done even more research. Oh, because cool. if it's the only, yeah, yeah, and if on the federal level for felony, if this is the only way for accountability, then that's the route we have to take. There's right. a long history of why this is so, but I, I'll just spare you. I mean, we've had so many blessings from the founding generation and the Constitution, Bill of Rights, et cetera, into the 1800s, into the oh 1930s and 40s. We've had incredible things, but this momentum has been shifted. Um, by people that want to control for their corrupt purposes. Um, but here's a statement from a judge. It's Judge Robert Hansen, who's charged to grand juries on the Western Shore counties of Maryland, 1781. And of course, as you as you may know, a judge would uh, impanel a grand jury, and then he would give them their oath of office, and then he would give them a charge. In the charge, he would talk about the legal system and how important grand jury is. 
to motivate the grand jurors to do their duty. So uh, Robert Hansen's charge to the grand jury was 1781. Gentlemen of the grand jury, you are convened to execute a trust of the last importance to your country. To inquire after every breach of the penal law, to protect the innocent, to punish the guilty, to guard against the encroachments of power, and to keep every man within the limits prescribed by the Constitution and the laws is in general the business of a grand jury. You will present every man for whose accusation you shall have strong probable grounds, but in favor of innocence you will disregard unmeaning popular clamors. And, um, Judge Pickering, he was New Hampshire, 1790, he said, uh, the institution of a grand jury is the most effectual check to arbitrary power and oppression. So we have taken a wrong turn with this Johnny-come-lately Justice Department, 1870, and when a president appoints an attorney general, um, you can have a fox that guards a henhouse situation. So that's something if you're if you're willing, Robert, you can go ahead and give him my phone number, and I can help write uh, give you information like this so you can write an article. And the, the key question right now, uh, most Americans that are awake, is why isn't the Justice Department prosecuting for a grand jury regarding Hunter Biden's laptop? Well, yeah, we all got uh, quiet on that one. <laughs> I think because we don't we don't know why a good well, you know, there there isn't a good reason for it. I mean, we know I think we have an idea of of, of why, and I think you, you know you touched on, uh, you know, touched on it, Samuel, and you know, and I I've been talking about this, and and uh, you know, as you talk about corruption, I mean, I, I always find it ironic that you know. It's, it was a couple of Christmases ago. I'll tell you a little story. Uh, it was a couple of Christmases ago, and I don't know why they put Mr. Smith goes to Washington on around Christmas. I, I don't know, uh, but it was on, and I'm like, this movie was take this, this movie was like made in like 1943 or something. So it's like an 80 something year old movie, and I'm like, they're talking about government corruption then. 80 years ago, we we finally get a you know a president of the United States that wants to address uh, the corruption in the federal government, and you had a propaganda machine in the form of the lamestream media, some call it. I call it the alphabet media, but anyway, uh, to convince a good portion of the country that Trump was the one who is who, corrupt when he was trying to. You know, get rid of the corruption in the United States. You know, in the in the, in the federal government. Now, I, I, you know, I, I think he could have done a better job. I don't think that he surrounded himself with the right people. You know, especially in the beginning of his uh, his tenure. And hopefully, you know, again, if, if he gets elected in 2024, he would have learned a lot of lessons from that. Now, I do see, unfortunately, it is the top of the hour, Samuel. Of course, we'd love to have you stay on longer if you could. But, you know, you did say that you would stay uh, for the first segment, which we certainly appreciate, and we definitely want to have you back on to the program. Uh, now, if you could spend some more time with us, it would be great. If not, uh, I do want this to be uh, your opportunity to, you know, maybe say some, some closing comments if, if you'd like and, uh, and, and get on with uh, your evening. But, I mean, that's up to you, uh, 
Let's go do Samuel. Yeah, so uh, unfortunately, I do have to do have to bounce. Um, but you know, I, I had a lot of fun. I appreciate you having me on, and hopefully, I can come back on in the near future. Well, yeah, certainly. We'll we'll certainly have uh, have you on a number of our shows, and I'll get to again. I'll get to the link from the uh, the conference that we'll be covering uh, this weekend because I think there's going to be some very interesting information uh, for people out there uh, on that. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk again, certainly, uh, both on and off air, and uh, appreciate it. Uh, folks, that was uh, Samuel Mangold-Lennett uh, uh, from uh, The Blaze. Uh, certainly check them out on their website. I do have a link here on uh, Blog Talk Radio uh, that you can go to see his art, go straight to his articles. You can find it here uh, in the show description, and definitely uh, check those out. Check out his article. And a little prelude uh, earlier tonight, Kelly, when you were talking about that uh, audio uh, of, Ga- of Gates uh, talking to the FBI Assistant Director of Cyber. Uh, I do have the audio of that. We're going to play that uh, shortly here for people who haven't had the opportunity to say it. But, I mean, this, I mean, this is all over the place. This isn't just with, you know, what happened with Hunter Biden. Uh, I mean, this, this happens all the time. I mean, look at what's with the January 6th commission. You know, when uh, Ted Cruz uh, was um, – and he, he just he recently did a – he recently endor- endorsed Josh Man. Oh, well, yeah, a little programming note. Uh, Ted Cruz recently endorsed Josh Mandel, uh, who we had on the show. He's running for U.S. Senate here in Ohio, uh, and I think Ted Cruz recently endorsed him. Uh, so we had jo- – again, we had Josh here on the show, so – uh, you can hear that interview uh, back in our archive. Uh, but anyway, uh, so when Ted Cruz was asking, um, you know, someone about, you know, who was involved with the uh, the happenings on January 6th, you're, you're hearing, you know, they're like, oh, well, I, we can't go over uh, sources and methods. You know, they kept dodging his, his, his questions. Oh, we can't, you know. We can't tell over. Well, wait a minute. If your sources, not not much your sources, but if your methods is to entrap people and motivate people to do riots, I mean, just look what happened in. <clears throat> excuse me. Just look what happened in Michigan. Uh, there's a lot of people thinking that those uh, guys in Michigan were uh, entrapped uh, to do the so-called, you know, ki- you know, kidnapping plot, you know, of the governor, uh, but. Yeah, so yeah, you see that all the time with it just they just keep dodging it. I mean, yes, I definitely want all these uh, investigations, but I mean, we don't really, I mean, what do we get out of it? I mean, look how long it took for the Durham report to come out. I mean, we knew, you know, that Trump was spied on. Trump said it, you know, and it took what, 2 years. They were, you know, we're we're ex- exposing things about the the vote as well. Of course, after the fact, it's it's, it's about too late. I mean, if I mentioned in the beginning of the show, uh, when I was talking with Samuel, this is like we're only a little over a year in a four-year administration of this regime. I mean, it already feels like it's been almost four years, but we got another three years uh, of Biden, you know, occupying the White House. So even if the Republicans do get in, which I think they are, I think it's a reckoning that is actually coming against the Democrats, both in the House and Senate. And I hope they do these investigations. But by gosh, I hope it don't take too long. And I hope it's not, 
you know, we, we actually get some, some answers and get, get some truth. Uh, but anyway, I do have that audio, uh, Kelly, so let me go ahead and, and play that for the audience, and, and we'll move forward, uh, you know, with, with our discussion for that. And, folks, we say Kelly, you know, he is our, our guest panelist, as he uh, stated, and our grand jury uh, specialist and, we, you know, our constitutional scholar. Uh, so that's Kelly. You guys recently heard uh, there with, you know, Samuel. So let's go ahead and play that audio uh, with uh, with Gates. It was just, it was pretty uh, well. It was pretty telling. Uh, again, I've already kind of described what 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 to expect. Where is it? The laptop, sir. I'm not here to talk about the laptop. I'm here to talk about the FBI cyber program. You are the assistant director of FBI cyber. I want to know where Hunter Biden's laptop is. Where is it? Sir, I don't know that answer. That is astonishing to me. Has has FBI cyber assessed whether or not Hunter Biden's laptop could be a point of vulnerability, allowing America's enemies to hurt our country? Sir, the FBI cyber program is based off of what's codified in Title 18, or um, Title 18, Section 1030, a code which talks about Computer intrusions, right, using nefarious intent. Network well, you've talked about passwords here. I mean, Hunter Biden's password on his laptop was Hunter02. He drops it off at a repair store. I'm holding the receipt from Max Computer Repair, where in December 2019, they turned over this laptop to the FBI. And what now you're telling me right here is that as the assistant director of FBI Cyber, you don't know where this is after it was turned over to you three years ago. Yes, sir, that's an accurate statement. How are Americans supposed to trust that you can protect us from the next colonial pipeline if it seems that you can't locate a laptop that was given to you three years ago from the first family, potentially creating vulnerabilities for our country? Sir, it's, it's not in the purview of my investigative responsibilities. But, but that is shocking that, that you wouldn't, as the assistant director of cyber, know whether or not there are international business deals, kickbacks, shakedowns that are on this laptop that would make the first family suspect to, to some sort of compromise. Mr. Assistant Director, have you assessed whether or not the first family is compromised as a result of the Hunter Biden laptop? Sir, as a representative of the FBI cyber program, it is not in the realm of my responsibilities to deal with the questions that you're asking me. Ha- has anyone at FBI cyber been asked to make assessments whether or not the laptop creates a point of vulnerability? Sir, we have multiple lines of investigative responsibility in the FBI. They're all available in public source. Well, I would think you'd know this one. I mean, I would think that if the president's son, who does international business deals, referencing the now president with the Chinese, with Ukrainians, I mean, have you assessed whether or not the Hunter Biden laptop gives Russia the ability to harm our country? Sir, again... We can do this back and forth for the next couple of minutes. I don't have any information about the Hunter Biden laptop or the investigation. But should you? I mean, you're the assistant director of FBI Cyber. I might buy the block and line chart. No, sir, I should not. Who should, who should we put in that chair to ask questions about this laptop that FBI has had for three years? Sir, I'm not, I'm, I'm not in a position to 
make a recommendation who should say. So you don't have it. You don't know who has it. You don't know where it is. You're the assistant director. You know, earlier you talked about whether or not you were the Grant Hill or the Christian Leitner. It sounds like you're the Chris Weber trying to call a timeout when you don't have one. So I mean, who is it? Do you even know who has it? Do you know who we should put in that chair to ask these questions to? No, sir, I don't know who has it. Well, it, could you find out and tell us? You're going to have to give us briefings, thanks to Mr. Lou and Mr. Massey's question, about whether or not the FBI was taking a $5 million test drive on the Pegasus system that was being used to target people in politics, people in government, people in the media, people in American life. So will you commit to give us a briefing as the assistant director of FBI Cyber as to where the laptop is, whether or not it's a point of vulnerability, whether or not the American people should wonder whether or not the first family is compromised? Sure, I'd be happy to take your request back to our office. Gosh, I mean, will you advocate for that briefing? As in, you, you will? I will be happy to take your request back to FBI headquarters. Well, will you, do you believe that that is a briefing that the Congress is, is worthy of having, I guess? Sir, I'm, I am, I'm not going to answer that question. Right? I'm here to talk. The invitation, the, the invitation says... Oversight of the FBI's cyber division. It does not say anything. Well, well right, but I mean, this is this is a cyber asset. This it's is not a point a of vulnerability. Asset. If there are passwords, if there are business deals, if there are references to things that could harm our country, like you can't even sit here right now and say that you know that there's not a point of vulnerability. Maybe there are other crimes. Maybe there are tax issues or whatever. But as it relates to our, I mean, it, is the first family sufficient cyber infrastructure to protect? You don't even know if they're compromised. Tell you what, Mr. Chairman, I seek unanimous consent to enter into the record of this committee the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop, which I'm in possession of. I'm not. Hmm? There's no objection to that. So I can't say no objection. I've, ne I've never had. I will object pending further uh, investigation. What's the basis of that objection? It's a unanimous consent request, and I object pending. Well, I have a subsequent question. Mr. Chairman, I seek unanimous consent to enter into the record the receipt. It may very well be. From the Mac shop. It may very well be entered into the record after we look at it further. Very well, Mr. Chairman, um, I have a subsequent question. Oh, I'm sorry. Mr. Chairman, I seek unanimous consent to enter into the record the receipt from the Department Mr. of Mr. Justice. Mr. Chairman, this is Ms. Deming. Am I next? Or without, or am I without, next? Or? Without, without objection. Well, Kelly, just with the very uh, statement, I would be happy to take your request back to the office. Basically, is I'm going to go back to the office, tell them what you said, and we're all going to laugh because we know that the FBI isn't going to do anything about it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, isn't that interesting? Robert, did you know the FBI is under the Justice Department? I do. You do? Good. Okay, did you know that the Justice Department created the FBI? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, before our conversation today, the history of it's just mind-blowing. So, well, yeah, I mean, the you, question, I knew this before, you, before the conversation today. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay, so you were 
one of the few people who researched the history of the FBI, the history of the Justice Department, and it's just rather stunning. The performance, instead of having a blind eye for justice, the Justice Department does what it wants to protect their political allies or investigate their political opponents is a very fascinating thing. And when we look at the Trump, Russia, 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 all that stuff, independent counsel was appointed. I don't remember who the independent counsel was. Did you hear that uh, Adam Schiff has COVID? (laughs) Could have happened to a nicer guy. That what? I said Adam Schiff uh, tested positive for COVID. I said it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. <laughs> well, hopefully he, he'll get over it very quickly, and then he'll realize, oh, gee, this isn't as scary as everybody's made it to be. Yeah. So do you notice that exchange between Nadler and Gates? Oh, yeah, you he know? was being coached. Nadler was being coached. Yeah, there's somebody right behind Nadler saying right. something, something to him and counseling him. And uh, it was like, whoa. Oh, Nadler repeats Nadler repeats it, yeah. Yeah. So Nadler, obviously, big time leftist. Um, oh, my gosh, we can't have something to destroy our president. It could really hurt the uh, – Democratic Party, just like Watergate hurt the Republicans, you know. That's how Jimmy Carter got in. It's just, you know. Anyway, the other thing is Harold Ford gave President Nixon a presidential pardon, you know, the Vice President Ford, um, and he got creamed by Carter. Carter got creamed by Reagan. But, yeah, Nadler was um, – I think everybody was just point blank shocked. That's why there's this big pause. Unanimous consent, enter into the record, the contents, uh, Hunter Biden's laptop. And there was just a moment of shock. And then Nadler, first he said, uh, no objections. And then something something got to him, maybe the guy standing behind him. Uh, you need to object. Mm-hmm. So that's when Nadler objected. Yeah. And, and, and Gates is like, on what basis? On what basis are you doing this? Well, uh, um, we have to uh, further review. Um, well, the question is, did it actually get entered into the record or not, which is very interesting because once it's entered into the record, then people can do a public request. No, I don't think it was. I, I'm not sure if it was. Somebody said it was, but – you know, Nadler did say, uh, seeing no objections, he was doing his formal professional chair, and so it looked like it was heading into the record, and then all of a sudden, he gives an objection. So I, to me, it's not clear whether it actually was officially entered into the record, if it was. If it was, oh boy, is it going to be ugly for the Democrats. Um but yeah, I, back to my point, they seem to protect their own and let their own get away with enormous corruption, evil, wickedness. Um, but if you're a political enemy, you know, say, for example, you're protesting at the school board as an angry parent, 
which obviously these days is justifiable. They're going to send the FBI after you for saying too much or too loud at the, at the school board. What in the world? It's kind of mixed justice. It's just, you know, we do have this equal application of the laws. <laughs> you know, we don't just prosecute one. We prosecute everybody. That's the idea, but it's not happening. Um, I guess in this country, it's safer to be Hunter Biden than, than it is an angry school board parent. <laughs> oh yeah, this yeah, got to change. Yeah, this has got to change. Well, and, and that's one of my. I mean, I know we're all hoping that if the Republicans get in, that they're actually going to do, you know, the, you know, the investigative work. But you know, I'm I'm not too sure. I mean, I'm not too sure. I mean, look how long we wanted to see you know Hillary get her upcoming. And she never did, and she never will. It's just not ever going to happen. I wonder why, because even, you know, when Trump was campaigning, um, one of their debates in 16, um, Hillary made a quite the snide comment about Trump, and then Trump came back and said, oh, you just don't like me because you're going to go to jail. I become president. You're going. You're going to jail. And he said that. But why hasn't it happened? Is it is it possible that our federal government is way too big that the president is not able? I mean, any president is too inundated with too many problems that um, there are good old boys and uh, corrupt officials. Too many of them that Trump couldn't. Manage this and take care of business. Is is that what the problem is? I'm just scratching my head. But no, he said I he wanted to go after Hillary. Problem. Yeah, I he he said he wanted to go after Hillary, and and you know you're going to go to jail is what he said on stage, and the crowd went crazy at how he countered whatever he was saying, and uh, you know crazy as in happy, but it never happened. Well, what's going on here? Well, as I said, I think, you know, when, when Trump was running for election the first time, uh, you know, he's talking about draining the swamp. I don't know if he realized how how deep and wide uh, that swamp really is. I mean, my gosh, you put Rince Cubis as his, uh, you know, chief of staff, for God's sake. Oh, I was so mad when I found that out. Rince Priebus, yeah, the chairman of the Republican Party. Staff, uh, so yeah, Gingrich would have been much better. But yeah, I, Trump's done some things that frustrate me. Overall, yeah, I really like what he, uh, many of the things he's done. Um, but my gosh, Rince Priebus. Um, oh yeah, I remember on the show, he bombed and Trump bombed Syria. I'm like, dude. You need a constitutional declaration. Where does he do that kind of thing? Or some other type of – just you don't do that. I mean he was courteous to tell the Russians, hey, uh, we're going to be bombing the base here a little bit. So you might, guys might want to you know, go away for a while and be safe. But that was, you know, he did – Trump did have a – apparently, and he's even spoke of it, a good relationship with Trump uh, – with Putin. And him and Putin seemed to get along pretty well. And opening up trade and, and communications is, is always good. Um, well, I'd say 
90 plus percent of the time is good. But when you're having commerce and exchange, you're having uh, somewhat of a dependency that in, inhibits people or or um, prevents people from going to war, nations going to war. Um, and history is fascinating. When people aren't trading, they seem to be fighting, invading, and plundering. Um, that's a whole other thing. But obviously we wouldn't have this Ukraine situation if Trump was president. Well, um, no. If you look no, back to – Putin wasn't there. Yeah, Putin wasn't there to, to attack Ukraine. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked about election fraud and problems there. And these people – there's worldwide consequences when you have election fraud and – a president that's very possibly could be illegitimate, which we'll find out over time because states are still working on things. But people in Ukraine are getting killed. Had Trump been in president, those people would still be alive today. Right. Um, but, know, well, but of that's course, a good point. I mean, that, yeah, that, that, that's what people should put out there. But yeah, for all you people who are for Ukraine, think about it. all those people that died, you know, because of the. Yeah, the invasion of, of uh, Russia, all those people would be alive today if Trump was in office. That's a very good point. Yeah. yeah. And so I, you know, what America does has worldwide ripple effects. And who's in charge in America has worldwide ripple effects. And uh, I, I liked it that Trump was um, in communication with the leader of North Korea, you know, China, Putin, etc. Um, we didn't have any wars break out. Two reasons. One is strength. Don't mess with Trump. Number two was simple communication lines. Um, the SALT talks, U.S. and Russia, they didn't quite accomplish what either side wanted fully, but the very fact that they were sitting down and talking was was breaking the ice. Um, that was, you know that communication line is always is very good. Anyway, but it, it, yeah. So Ukraine, um, <clears throat> I guess the Russians are retreating to some degree in the areas around Kiev. I'm watching a a video by a pastor. He interviewed a, a pastor from Belarus, which is just north of Ukraine. And this pastor, he's known him for 20 years, Ukrainian pastor, or I'm sorry, Belarus pastor. But they started like 20 churches, and, and uh, many of them are in Ukraine. And the Ukrainian farmers are slaughtering livestock, canning the food, and getting it over to the Ukrainian soldiers. And I don't think Putin was ready for the uh, the switchblade. Have you heard of the switchblade? I have not. The switchblade, um, it's, a, it's a drone plane with a camera, and it's good for, I want to say, I think it said 10 kilometers, 15 kilometers. There's two versions. There's the 300 and the, and the 600 switchblade. And it's a drone plane that it, um, the wings swing out like a switchblade knife does. Mm-hmm. And so you get your tail fins and your rudder and you got your regular wings. Uh, as soon as it's launched out of a, a tube, um, 
the wings snap out like a spring, like a switchblade knife. And so the you, you, it, it, the lighter version, the 300, only weighs like five pounds, including the tube. And it's kind of like put a mortar in and it shoots, boom. Well, there's a little explosive charge in the tube that puts it in the air, and then the wings are out. By then, it's flying, and you're running um, like you're flying a drone with a camera. And it has a, a feature that within, I think, the last 20 seconds, you can uh, stop stop it from detonating. So you can um, muzzle the explosive so it, even if it hits the ground, it's not going to blow up. But they can also, instead of hitting the target that you can see on the camera, you can say, go back up and go look for another target. And so uh, soldiers can carry this in their backpack, and, and the U.S. has been providing these. Of course, it's manufactured in America. They were using this in Iraq, um, but it's not all over. It's over. On, it's all over the news now, like NBC, ABC, whatever. You can you can just type in on YouTube Switchblade. So there's two versions. The one is for lightly armored vehicles and ground troops, and the other is uh, the 600 it can take out a tank. I'm not sure how that technology works, but you're basically watching in real time as you're you're flying the drone right into a tank. And yeah. the smaller version costs like six thousand dollars, if I remember right, and the bigger one, tank, the the tank killer, costs a lot more, and so. Putin was expecting just to march in, and in a few weeks it's over. But they were met with technology, and they were met with local support of farmers feeding soldiers. Napoleon said an army runs on its stomach. Um, so it, it's, it's pretty mind-blowing that um, the Ukrainians are really t- are, are tough fighters, and we might see this whole Russia thing. Well, it's going to be one of one of two results is. The, the uh, Russians are going to just withdraw and say, "Okay, we got we got beat," which would be a very big embarrassment to Putin's ego. Uh, well, three options: you can have a stalemate where they've taken part of the country and they're just going to hold it, and then the third option is um, they're getting defeated and they go ahead and they they go nuclear, which nobody wants that to happen. But the economic sanctions are putting a serious hurt on. On Russia, it's like the whole rest of the world is ganging up on, well, except for maybe China and um, Iran, um, but very few allies does Russia have. So we we could see this uh, close or escalate. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's got to be embarrassing for Putin that plans didn't go so well. He's even having a lot of Russians in his own country, we don't want this war. We shouldn't be doing this. Of course, then you have on the other side of things, you know, my my mom always said there's two sides to every story. And there are some reports that, that Ukraine was having a bioweapons lab and Putin's trying to take it out. And the other thing that I've heard is that um, NATO countries, this is after World War II and Stalin and da-da-da, but basically <clears throat> there was an agreement about the – in the Warsaw Pact region, Poland was never to be able to join NATO, but Poland joined NATO. And Ukraine has stayed neutral as far as 
NATO, but they're looking at doing this now. Um, so there are some treaties that have been violated that, that Putin's not too happy about. Um, so, I mean, you don't just go to war for nothing. I remember in college, American history, one and two. And so one semester, we, you know, right in the Civil War, and the professor said, no one knows the real causes of the Civil War. What? He's a history professor? Well, no one knows the real causes of the Civil War. I'm like, okay, they're, just, they're just bored and they're going to kill each other? That doesn't make any sense. You know? Obviously, there were reasons for the Civil War. They wouldn't have died for it. But, um, so yeah, Putin has his reasons. For example, depends on what source you're getting your information from. And, even though that, if that source is correct, these pastors that were on interviewed, the Ukrainians, um, they were saying, I'm, I'm watching the media, and they're completely lying. This is not true. This is not what's going on. This is not what's going on. Um, you know, she's in America watching American media. So said, this is a lie. Gee, welcome to America. The first thing to learn is our media lies to us. <laughs> um, <laughs> but enjoy the sights, you know. Enjoy the Statue of Liberty and uh, maybe Mount Rushmore <laughs> and the media lies. I'm, I'm just being funny, but anyways. Well, yeah, it's almost like it's just a thought anymore. Uh, I, hate to, I hate to say it, um, but, you know, the, the media, they're not, yeah, they're not the purviewers of the truth anymore. They're just a propaganda arm, you know, of the Democrat Party. We've been saying that. We've known that for years there, Kelly. Yeah. Now, one thing, because um, we you know, we haven't been doing the full, uh, you know, three hours during this campaign, because I've been, I've been getting some conflicting information uh, because of redistricting here as to whether we're going to, uh, you know, actually, my ele- you know, the election I'm in is actually going to take place uh, or not, but now I'm hearing tonight that, that it is, so i got to get more uh, more involved there, so you know that's why the past two uh, last week I don't even know if we did a program because I was at a campaign event, and then the week before that I was working on some campaigning. I'm going to be doing some uh, campaign uh, work tonight uh, because I'm actually going to find my first time ever running for anything, and it's the uh, uh, and I'm running against someone locally who's is actually pretty well known. So I'm going to have to do more campaigning than my opponent. Uh, so I'm going to have to get the get to work on that soon. And this, uh, and so this will be you know another abbreviated program tonight uh, for that. So I can, uh, you know, I got to get working on you know cards and you know yard signs and things of that nature uh, this evening. Uh, you know, as part of the campaign, so I get to put it together, have them. Organized, uh, have them, you know, put out, uh, you know, things of that nature. Ordered, and it takes time for things to get in. And so the primary will be here before you know it. Uh, so I'll be working on that. Uh, but this was a special edition anyway, so because we want to be able to bring in uh, Samuel onto the show, and we really appreciate and looking forward to, you know, having him back on and, and getting his insights and and there with the, with the blaze and uh, and I will kill. I get him your your information. Uh, so for perhaps he could do that. Uh, 
But, yeah, I want to talk about uh, what we got coming up next uh, on Saturday. Uh, I will be doing uh, – of course, everyone is, is welcome. Now, I won't th- – frankly, there won't be any talking. It's just going to be completely the conference. Uh, so I'll just – I'm going to just be streaming the first half because it is a six-hour conference. Uh, as you know, the show only goes three hours. Uh, so I'll be conferencing in – not conferencing. I'll be uh, streaming in, in the conference. Uh, next week, it's the conference to establish a new security and development architect for all nations, and again hosted by the International Schiller Institute. Uh, and you know some of the topics. You know you could go to the website which I've uh, which I've supplied here uh, for the Schiller Institute, and then you could go to where the conference is going to be about. And, and it's interesting. It's it's, it's, an, it's an interesting take on you know a new global paradigm, you know economic paradigm. Uh, that they're going to be talking about. Um, so here's a little, uh, you know, thing that they've got, uh, and I'll read this from the website. Uh, you know, and this is from again from the Schiller Institute, uh, and then you can look at what the itinerary is. We're going to be doing the uh, the first and section, the first and second sessions. Uh, one is going to be the uh, plenary session, and that's going to be. Um, Here's going to be the different people that you'll hear from uh, in these uh, first two sections uh, that's going to be at the conference. Uh, you're going to hear the founder of the Schiller Institute uh, and the keynote speaker, um, and this could be Hella Zepp LaRouche. She was the wife of uh, Lyndon LaRouche. Uh, then there's going to be uh, Ambassador uh, Antonali uh, Antivon. He is the ambassador uh, of the Russian Federation to the United States. So he'll actually be uh, speaking. There's also going to be uh, Sam Petroda. Uh, he's an entrepreneur and policymaker um, uh, for, you, you know, you talk about the United States and India. Uh, and then there's going to be Jay uh, Nadu. He is a cabinet minister under President Nelson Mandela in South Africa. There's going to be Zhen Zhanghan, uh, Chinese People Associate for Peace of Disarmament. There's going to be Alicia Ruggeri. Uh, she's a spokeswoman of the Comentato Apparel Republica, uh, and it's Italy. This is a trade unionist in Italy. Uh, and there's going to be P.S. Raghavan, former Indian ambassador to Russia, is also going to be speaking. That's going to be in the first section. And in the second section, there's Dennis Small um, of Ibero-America editor. And there's going to be Professor Justin Yifu-Lin, uh, dean uh, of the Institute of New Structural Economics. He's also the dean of the Institute of uh, the South Cooperative Cooperation and Development. And he's also an honorary dean of the School of National Development at Peking University. Uh, there's also going to be Dion Jean Seni, president of the Pan-African League. And then also we'll hear from Fredik Alexander Gatan, uh, who's the president of the USC TRAB Trade Union Confederation of Colombia and Pedro Rubio Colombian Trade Union leader. So there's going to be definitely a, a host of people uh, internationally uh, that are going to be at this conference. You know, it's, it's a uh, so we'll be you know hearing from them uh, on that. So it's, it's interesting. Uh, I don't know if I will you know subscribe to everything that you know they'll be talking about. Uh, but you know, one of the things that Bard's Logic, you know, you know, was founded to do, is to you know get information out uh, to we the people and let them decide 
on, you know, the content of what's in uh, the show. So that's going to be something that's going to be available. We're going to do that again live on uh, Saturday, this Saturday morning. And then, of course, there's all podcasts that will be available. Um, and so that being said, is, here's a, you know, you know, their take on, on why they're having this conference, okay? And it says, you know, our world is under the immediate existential threat of a generalized warfare and economic destruction affecting billions of people including the possibility of nuclear war, and thus the possible annihilation of the human species, is therefore extremely urgent to establish a new security and development architecture for all nations, which must take into account the interests of every single nation on the planet. Uh, And so, you know, uh, talks about, you know, more of that. Um, And I could uh, move on, Kelly, but I mean, what's your thoughts? on, on, on some of those people that, you know, you heard we're going to have on – well, we're not going to have them on the show. I mean, they're going to be at the conference we're going to be streaming in. Well, it's always good to get people together and talk. Um, I know the Olymp- Olympics kind of went fruitcake weird uh last few times, but getting people together to talk on so many levels, um, perspectives, is very – it's obviously very good. Um, I haven't heard much of these people or who they are or what their positions are or what they represent, um, but, you know. You do a lot more about history than I – mean, I, I mean, I like history, but I'm not – I don't know all the, the details I think that, that, that you have, you know, shown on the show. And one thing they talk about a lot is having a new – like a new tree of Westphalia. Uh, and so uh, you're familiar with what the Prius Vesalius is, correct? Prius Vesalius? What is that again? No, the Treaty of um, the West, the Treaty of Westphalia. Versailles, the Treaty of Versailles. No, Westphalia during after the Hundred Years' War. Oh no, I'm not familiar with that. Okay. But you are talking about the war between the French and the English for a hundred years. <laughs> well, pretty much all of Europe Engulfed <laughs> all of Europe Well, yeah yeah. The, what's funny is you look through history um, You know, high speed uh, I've, I've seen some YouTube videos where This is the wars that happened in the, in the major battles Since the beginning of time Or ones that they found recorded But it's funny to see uh, over the centuries, oh gee, France and England—they're at war again. <laughs> what a surprise! <laughs> um, but yeah, I—I I, I can't comment too much on something I don't know. So uh, no, no, that's okay. But this video I did watch. There's a whole bunch of wars in Europe. Unbelievable amount of wars and battles. Um, Africa doesn't seem to have very many. Uh, South America, not too many. America was just kind of, and and they rated the battles won by country. And obviously, you know, you go a thousand BC, and then you go into, you know, the Greeks, the Romans, empires, and then you got the Muslims and all their battles. But you know, nothing was happening in America really until 1776, and then the civil, 1812 Civil War, and then the Europe seemed to light up quite a bit during World War II, obviously. 
And then they, in America's very short time, we have we've won an awful lot of battles. And in this video, I'll, I'll just send it to you. It's just a kick <clears throat> to to watch if you're a history buff. Um, but Poland was kind of surprising. The Polish and the French. Uh, they appear to be pretty tough people. It's just in World War II they weren't mechanized as well as, as the Nazis were. Um, but yeah, war is... <laughs> I remember in junior high, our, our history teacher had a uh, poster about all the number of wars in the world, and it averaged about one war every four and a half years. And this is like in the, I want to say early 80s or late 70s when I was in junior high. But basically, uh, one year every four and a half years in the world history. So the world, the world is a very violent place. We're just very blessed to have a constitution, the rule of law, and peace. And then this uh, this con- this continues here, and you know people can you know see all of it and to see the full itinerary. Again, by going here to Blog Talk Radio, where uh, I do have a link uh, to the to the you know the, the link to the conference, um, and you know it says in the present war in Europe, uh, the succession of wars in Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Yemen, Somalia, Sudan. Well, see all these wars, Kelly, as you said, uh, uh, and the spread of famine and disease have already killed millions of innocent people and destroys their homes, their livelihoods, and their future. The COVID-19 crisis to remind us that all life on Earth is interconnected, interwoven, and interrelated. We must focus on sustainability. And now when they say that, they're not talking about, you know, the, the new Green Deal or the environmental movement. They're not, they're not talking about that when they're talking about sustainability. Actually, these people are more about, you know, sustainable living, but also being able to be, you know, productive as well. You know, it says, you know, we focus on sustainability and inclusion to improve the condition of our planet and our people. For this, our mission is not only to stop such self-destructive notion, but to organize all the conditions for peace and prosperity based on the common aims of mankind. We must design a new paradigm, a new order, and they're not talking about a new world order here. It it, it seems different. These these people are actually anti-globalists, at least my – uh, my take on these people are that they're you know they sound that that's the thing that always confused me when I was talking to a uh, uh, gentleman we uh, we had on Stuart Battle uh, you know because we have many conversations and, and it almost sounds like they're globalists but they're actually not they're they're anti globalists um, they're about global cooperation uh, but not you know a one world government where you have a, a ruling uh, oligarchy. Uh, that controls, you know, everyone on the planet. I mean, you still have you still have sovereignty, uh, but the the countries work more and more cooperatively, uh, based off of production and making, you know, you know, productivity around the, the world, bringing up the uh, the standard of living of everybody on you know on the planet. Uh, it uh, goes so that's what they mean by. Uh, you know, but you know, not by sustainability. They're not talking. You know, so don't, don't talk. They're not talking about the new green deal or anything. So, um, you know, we we must design a new paradigm, a new order. Again, not it's not a new world order. 
uh, which focuses on the needs of our planet and our people to take humanity to the next level. Behind the immediate danger of war is the already ongoing blowout of the transatlantic financial system. And we mentioned that earlier uh, tonight with our guests about how, you know, the, the West economic system is, is really based on speculation, whereas, you know, the East is more, you know, on productive, on production. That's why they're so anti the uh, New Green Deal and this, uh, you know, global warming, you know, just in, in stopping production because they want to be able to produce. It's just where, you know, people are stopping them. Now, maybe it's to protect the planet or maybe they don't want them to – they think that it's a zero-sum game and then not everyone to be prosperous. I don't know. Um, and it says uh, – you know, behind the immediate danger of war is already the ongoing. Okay, I've read that. So the hyperinflationary process uh, has been unleashed globally, which is a serious concern for the ec- economies of the Western nations. The controllers of the system are quick to resist any functioning alternative to the system, such as those presented by Russia, China, India, and others. Uh, so again, I, I don't know if I particularly agree with everything. That uh, will, you know, people will hear uh, on Saturday, or if they listen, you know, just to the podcast. Don't know if they're going to listen. You know, I agree with everything, but you know, I just want to bring it out to people and let them decide and see if this is a, you know, something that is a good direction for us to uh, to endeavor in. It says the president well, financial the, system uh, is being. Go ahead. Well, the history, one of the causes of war, is people are starving. You look at the French Revolution, which was an ugly mess, the reign of tower, terror, uh, like 45,000 people were murdered, but basically uh, people were starving. And they said, oh, these people that are rich, we just want to kill them, and let's farm our own government and blah, 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 blah. But basically hunger is a cause for a war to go and invade and plunder from your neighbors. And the Russia, the starving peasants there… I shouldn't call them peasants because they're human beings just like you and me. Um, but they, they'd had enough, and that's one of the things that caused the Bolshevik Revolution, throwing off the czars. Um, so, yeah, the uh, starvation and then another – when you have inflation, massive inflation, there's typically a regime change. Um, so when people are starving. You What do you do? You print money, right? Yeah, okay, good idea. No, that's the worst thing you could do. It's like throwing gasoline onto a fire. And pretty much every uh, – Chuck Missler discussed this. He was quite the researcher on a number of things. But every time there's been massive hyperinflation, there's always a regime change in government, and it doesn't always result in better circumstances for everybody. So, yeah, solving uh, <clears throat> solving food problems and trading with other nations uh, is generally a, a, a good idea, and it, it just happens to bring peace. You know, we, Challenges. I just don't. I don't think we're going to end up having peace until Christ returns. Simply because some idiot <clears throat> thinks that he can run the world better than anybody else, and so they got to take charge, take control, conquer, whatever. Uh, we're going to kill you people so that we can teach you civilization. That was the British Empire. <laughs> you know, so you can hear yeah. your, your tea time and and manners. But so we will, as we're conquering your country to bring you civilization, we will kill you. Politely on the battlefield. I mean, it's just some idiot. The Romans were doing this too. 
oh, we have civilization the world has never seen. So we're going to conquer these places and civilize them. Like, that's just, wait a minute, you're killing people to civilize them? I mean, if your ideas are so good, you shouldn't need force. <laughs> I mean, it, it, this is a history yeah, of the world, Yeah, like forcing so, the COVID vaccine, right? Yeah. No, I, I got an update on that if you want to um, no, yeah, yeah, finish it's, your segment here. Okay, and then it says, um, the present financial system is being used to perpetuate the colonial state of underdevelopment and of the developing sector with Malthusian policies. Therefore, to stop this drive leading to war and destruction, it is necessary to establish an entirely new economic system, economic and financial paradigm with an integrated approach to security. There's some background noise going on there, Kelly. I don't know if you're yeah, engineering sorry. or what. <laughs> That's right. Sorry. Approach to security, economy, and development of all nations. And it says the peace of Westphalia is our reference point. Not only did it establish the benefit, honor, and advantage of the other and the perpetual oblivion, amnesty, or pardon of all that had been committed, it further included a financial reorganization of all countries participating in it. It sorted out and settled insolvent and illegitimate debt and financial claims, mostly by debt uh, annulment or negotiated rescheduling. It has also established uh, the role of the state in the reconstruction of nations after the war. And so, um, and so one of the things they talk about is, um, you know, the way that the current uh, international monetary fund system works is basically to help countries to, uh, you know, build, I guess, to modernize. They have to take out these huge loans, you know, but then they have, with, you know, with high interest rates to uh, have to pay back, and that actually just puts the, these nations and the other, you know, you know, just, you know, more debt, and they're not actually able, you know, and so it would actually benefit us more, you know, basically to have more people we can, you know, can buy our, you know, our, our products from. And it says, the uh, international law is the interest of people uh, was developed from a piece of Australia, which finds its most advantage expression in the UN Charter, which, again, this is a part I'm, I'm not sure, because what, what, what the hell good has the UN done lately? I mean, whatever, let, let's go succinctly to, uh, you know, the war in Ukraine. I mean, where where's the UN peacekeeping forces when it comes to Ukraine? Uh, I mean, I don't I don't get it, Kelly. Uh, I mean, what what are they supposed to be there for? I mean, I've ever heard them being used, and I couldn't tell you how long. I mean, are they defunct or what? I mean, I'll be honest, I don't I don't know, but you never hear them well, you know, doing, frankly, doing anything. Well. The votes in the UN are largely composed of Muslim nations, and the Muslims support the Russians. Not all Muslim nations, of course, but that's kind of why the UN is can't do much. Yeah. So then they, you know, you know, continuing down, that's where they're talking about. It says, uh, it says the world order that was designed after World War II gave birth to the United Nations, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund. NATO, the WTO, uh, WHO, they are our favorite, right, the World Health Organization, and other institutions. 
These institutions proclaim their focus on democracy, human rights, capitalism, consumption, and military alliances, and for the most part function for 75 years. Their shortfalls, however, were in not fulfilling FDR's promise of the Bretton Woods system as he designed it to increase the standard living, their living standards of the developing system and end colonialism. So it is time to redesign the world to take advantage of hyperconnectivity and a new paradigm to deliver on basic human needs, inclusivity, new economic, durable survival, and peace for all. So, I mean, the aims aren't, you know, that's why I want to listen to what these people have to say. I want to hear what, you know, what they think the problem is, and then I want to hear what they think the, the solutions would be. Um, so I'm definitely interested in hearing what they've got to say on that. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I, I want to put it through. Again, I mean, I, I don't always just, you know, I don't want to live in a, you know, in a in a bubble, in, in an echo chamber like a lot of your a lot of your liberals do. Okay, I mean, they just listen to each other, and you know, and you know that's why they, you know they think if they hear something over and over again, then it must be true. Uh, and that's what happens when you live in a bubble. That's what happens when, you know, you know, you just have it. You just live in an echo chamber. And I, I always say the left does that. And and you know, I, I want to explore things that I don't particularly agree with, uh, because I want to say, okay, well, just because I don't particularly agree with it or at the time it doesn't sound right to me, doesn't mean that it doesn't it doesn't have any type of validity to it. So I don't, you know, so that's why one of the reasons why I'm going, you know. To have this on and have people again listen to it, and then you know make up their own minds on uh, you know if they think this is a good you know good direction uh, you know to take our nation. But Kelly, I do see it is about five minutes to the hour, and I do want you know again I've got some campaigning to do, so uh, some campaigning work, so I need to work on that now. Um, but I do want to give you some closing thoughts uh, for this episode, and then uh, you know, hopefully, if you if you can't uh, join us on, because it'll be really early for you, it'll be about six o'clock in the morning. So, uh, but I'll, I'll at least send you the uh, the link if, if that's something that you're interested in. Yeah, send me the link. I I may not listen, but <clears throat> maybe if I'm working outside the yard or something, I'll. Uh... I'll I'll listen to it, but I wanted to read to you something I think is very encouraging. <clears throat> I told you about the COVID-19 research team Dr. Ely was on, and yeah, I got yeah. a text about 11:30. I talked to him at midnight last night, and then I was kind of excited, so I kept. Uh, I, it was hard for me to go to sleep, and you get so excited. But here's what's going on. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well. A little background, yeah. So I helped two state house senators submit a petition to a federal grand jury in Medford, Oregon. Senator Linticum, Senator Thatcher. And then we did a filing, the team, COVID-19 research team. We did a filing to request a judge to impanel a federal grand jury, a special federal grand jury, which has subpoena power, investigative power nationwide. We did that filing on, uh, I believe it was March 4th. And uh, we are in the process of serving a number of people at CDC and Federal Health and Human Services, uh, the Department of Vital Statistics, which is health statistics. Anyway, so the CDC director announced, announces 
sweeping review CDC. Oh, really? We've been seeing the CDC backpedaling, by the way, since we filed. So a sweeping review of the CDC. Um, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky announced a sweeping review of the nation's leading public health agency on April 4th. That was about a month later after we filed. The review will evaluate the CDC's structure, system, and processes starting April 11th. Jim McRae, administrator with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, will join the CDC for a month-long listening tour and assessment. Uh, Walensky also has three senior leaders to gather feedback on the CDC, including its current structure and suggestions for change. Here is the quote. <clears throat> At the conclusion of this collective effort, we will develop new systems and processes to deliver our science and programs to the American people, along with a plan for how CDC should be structured to facilitate the public health work we do. And that was Rochelle Walensky, the director of CDC. Oh, wait a minute. Don't you guys already have a structure? Isn't it good enough? Why would you change things? Is it just a coincidence? Um, so we're, you know, we'll see what they're trying to do. Um, but how about you want to restructure things? How about every injection slash vaccine, whatever you want to call it, not really vaccines, but how about every single injection has a specific number on it? I mean, everybody's got a specific number for their driver's license. It's not hard to do. And that number is written down and logged so that if something bad happens to somebody, a vaccine injury, it straights all the way back to the manufacturer to the specific plant where it's being uh, manufactured. How about that simple change? Do you think they'll do that? I wonder. That's something encouraging I wanted to pass on, and I'll update you more on that. And there's, we've got to get Dr. Ely in because there's so much more information coming about. It's just hard to keep up with. My head is sometimes spinning. But anyway, so I just, I'll leave you with that. You know, there are people, patriots, freedom lovers, who are doing things um, to, to protect our liberties and hopefully uh, keep America prosperous. But I guess I'll end with that. Well, certainly, definitely, folks, hopefully you'll be able to uh, uh, join us uh, for the, uh, you know, hearing it live. But, again, it's, it'll be archived. So, you know, if you, you know, don't like getting up early on a Saturday morning, uh, and then, again, there's not going to be any calling in or, or, or any, you know, talking in any way. So that's, that's something that we'll, uh, we'll be doing. I'm just going to be streaming it in. And it's a six-hour conference, but, unfortunately, uh, there are some limits. Uh, that we'll have here, so uh, you know, with only three hours, so I can't I can't do the whole six hours. I just get the way that things are set up with the platform and that. Uh, but you know, we're looking forward to it. Uh, again, it'll be something interesting uh, uh, to be a part of. And again, I'm getting things set up for uh, my campaign, and we'll certainly talk about uh, other things. But I do certainly appreciate uh, listening to this, whether you're listening to it live or whether you're listening to the uh, you know, the archive, and we will see you next time. Uh, thank you very much, everyone. And uh, we'll end tonight, as I do every night uh, of the program, and that is with a song by Aubrey Ashburn. And thanks again, and thank you for coming to our special edition. Good night. Mm-hmm.